our scripture reading this morning <laughs> is 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 4, 5. 1 Timothy 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anna, for reading this morning, and thank you for listening and responding to her. Why do we do that? Why do we say this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God? You might come in and say, well, that sounds like, just feels dated. It feels like they used to do that at church when I was a kid. Why do we do that at Bethany Church? Here's why. Because it reminds us as we come to the word together, as we open it together and I preach and you hear and you listen, that we are not isolated listeners. Oh, yes, you're an individual redeemed by Christ if you've trusted him, but we listen corporately because we are a body. As First Timothy, this letter is so clearly pointing out and will today, the family of God's our imagery. So we do things at Bethany Church, the why behind it. We do things at Bethany Church together many times because our voices, yes, are individual, but one together we are the body of Christ. And so thank you for being part of that and responding together that we do believe this is the word of the Lord. We'll be working our way through 1 Timothy, building a healthy church. It's a letter written by an older pastor to a younger pastor left with the charge to oversee the churches in Ephesus. That's Timothy. Paul has covered a variety of topics so far, hasn't he? Quick review first. Uh, the first matter of importance, remember, was being a praying church for all people and leaders in high places so that we can be an evangelizing church and live on our mission. To be aware of false teachers we talked about. We talked about godly leadership and elders and deacons, and today he returns to some of those themes. If I were to ask 10 people on the street, what is the most important organization in the world? I'd probably get 10 in it different answers, wouldn't I? The most important group of people doing something together. Maybe some would say the U.S. government. Maybe some would say the World Bank. Maybe some would say the EU. Probably not. Maybe not in this room. Maybe some would say the UN. Maybe some would say Facebook. Maybe some would say the Supreme Court. It could be all kinds of answers if you were to ask that question. 
But do you know what the most important organization is in the world? Do you know it? The church. It's the church. Now, of course, it's more than an organization, as we're going to see today. It's a body of disciples, and we're going to talk about that today. But do you believe that? That the church is the most important thing going on in the world today? A lot of times there's a gap between what we hope and see and how it's described and what it seems to be in reality. And yet the Bible clearly speaks, as we'll see, it's the most important thing going on in the world today. I don't think I'm being overzealous or unrealistic, but I promise you today, the Bible and Christ himself has a very high view of the church and our involvement in the church. In fact, Christ died for the church, he founded the church, and he calls the church his bride. What more intimate, special word could he use? Well, here's where we're headed in our passage this morning. Paul wants to show us the great importance of the church by his first turning our attention to the identity and mission of the church as truth bearers. Then we're going to talk second about the conduct and confession of the church. And third, we'll see how false teachers can get in the way of that mission by adding to the pure, unadulterated gospel and how to spot them. That's important. So hopefully you got your outline there open and your Bible as well, whether it's a tablet or a phone or a, a book copy As we begin to look at our first facet of these three today, the church's identity and mission. Who are we as a church and and what are we to be about? What is our identity and mission? That's the first thing Paul wants us to get at today. What's our goal? How would you describe us as a people? What's our mission? Well, in verses 14 through 15, Paul gives us the purpose statement of this letter that we've read every week because it's really the center of this letter. It's one of the greatest descriptions of the church, I think, in all of the Bible. It points to the great significance that I've already highlighted that God puts upon the church, his people, as he designed, defined, and is creating us out of scratch. Let's look at it again. He says, I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul writing to Timothy. I want to really be there with you, he says. But I'm writing these things to you, this letter, so that, that's purpose statement, if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. His theme of the letter is clearly the conduct, the behavior of the church of God. Remember last week we talked about uh, Kingdom Civics 101, how to live together as the people of God. But before we get there, that idea of behavior and conduct, we'd be really remiss to skip over these three very warm and personal terms or metaphors he uses at the end of the verse to describe the church. So let's unpack those together because they give so much and tell us so much about the significance of the church and the mission of the church. He first calls us the home of God's family. It's your first fill-in underneath that first point there. We are the home of God's family. When he calls the church there, the, the phrase in the, in the actual scripture is the household of God. He's saying, we are God's family. We, we were adopted into that family. If 
by regeneration, new birth, new spirit, born again is the, the language you're probably familiar, as the spirit gives us that new birth. And then we are welcomed into, we become brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. In our home, we have a family mission statement on our wall that we recite together as a family before dinner each night. It says, grateful to God for grace in Christ, we pursue holiness and do our good work through his strength so that our Father in heaven receives the glory. We are family and we are his by grace alone. Now, why do we do this? Are the Jennings holier than other families? No. (laughs) Do we sometimes say it around the dinner table while grumbling as we've stumbled to the table after an argument? Yes. But we say it because we are family. And as the dad, the father of our home, I want us to be on the same page. Or at least for them to know what this family desires to be about, even if it hasn't taken root in heart yet pulling in the same direction as a family, living out the same mission together. And so it gives us a visible and verbal reminder that we are God's family. Well, here at church, we have a couple visible reminders too, don't we? You know what those are? We have a common family purpose. This is what we want to be about here. You probably know where these two signs are at. Helping people follow Jesus And the gospel changes everything. This is who we want to be. This is our our, our call. This is what we want to be in our local family because we believe this is what God wants us to be about. Whether you're 10, 5, 20, 50, 70, 90. Do you see the two signs here? Well, helping people follow Jesus, that's the relational discipleship component of the family. While the gospel is the truth, it's the core of what we are about and fuels our discipleship of our helping people follow Jesus. Paul will call the gospel today the mystery in verse 16, and he's going to display it for us with an, an, an old creed or hymn in verse 16 as well. The family moves as our mission statement or these here at the church in the same direction together so that we don't leave any family member behind. I remember I was at SeaWorld. We lived in Orlando, Florida for five years and I was in elementary school and we went to SeaWorld and I can remember being there uh, as children. And we had just finished watching the, the, uh, the Shamu show. Anybody seen that before in person there? Whether San Diego or uh, another SeaWorld or Florida, and we just finished watching the Shamu show, and we went down, we were all down at the glass looking, because you get really close, and you can really kind of see under the water, and as kids, we were all looking at it, and as we left the amphitheater, you know those glasses are kind of curved like that, they usually have an entrance on one side and the other, as we left the amphitheater, uh, my brother went one way, (laughs) and the rest of the family went the other way. Lots of people, crowded Orlando, summertime, SeaWorld, thousands of people there. And so what ended up happening is we ended up on our family, two different sides of this massive building before we had even noticed, and I'm sure before he had noticed. Now the panic 
<laughs> the hysteria of our family until we found him. It was a good couple hours later, actually. It was quite a while. He had gone off and wandered, and, and then I, he must have been found, if my memory serves me right, by an employee, and they had him in some office somewhere after that. We had to go find him. Uh, it was disruptive to say the least. We weren't pulling in the same direction. We weren't even all together in that moment until we found him, until he kind of came back into the stream of family life. And this is our purpose to each and every one of us, to make sure we are all coming along on the mission together. And that we all do and speak the gospel to one another and apply it to one another, disciple one another. You might call it every member ministry. That's a kind of daunting term. Every member ministry. Don't let that freak you out. And that doesn't mean you're necessarily leading a Bible study. It might mean that. But that could be anything from a little word of encouragement about Jesus in the hallway, in the gathering place, in a card I got from somebody this week. It could be anything all the way up to teaching a Bible study, sure. But gospel discipleship can be when you're, you know, cutting the grass together, gardening together, working side by side, sharing a cup of coffee or a donut out there, anything, anywhere, every member ministry. And it might sound a bit daunting to you this morning, but if the church is the most important plan for the world, we each and every one of us have a responsibility to play. You might think, well, I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure we can do that. And guess what? You're right. You're right. We cannot do that alone. But look at the second description Paul gives Timothy here. Our second description is not are we the home of the family of God, we are the home of the living God. The church of the living God is how Paul says it. What does this mean? It's such a loaded term, the church of the living God. That means that amongst us in this room, even in our hearts, is the living God, the eternal, the immortal, immortal. God only wise is here with us. He's our source, he's our life, he's our strength, he's our success. And from the garden now, think back to the beginning, from the garden, God's plan was to dwell in the midst of his people, wasn't it? The garden was the most intimate place. High on a mountain where heaven and earth meet, there was God with his people in perfect communion. That was his plan from the very beginning. And yet even though it was broken by sin in the fall, Exodus says, I will dwell, it says in that book, I will dwell, God says, among you and be your God and you will be my people. I'll dwell amongst you. And Joshua, when he was encouraging the Israelites and they were going to take back the promised land, he says, God, he says, here is how you will know that God is among you. He will defeat your mighty enemies. So just because the fall happened and sin came into the world, it doesn't mean that the mission of God ever changed. His mission is to be and dwell amongst his people. I love how 2 Corinthians puts it. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? It's us. For we are the temple of the living God. There's that phrase again. 
As God said, so I will make my dwelling place among them, some quotes from the Old Testament, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul's writing there that anything else in the world that becomes a God to you, becomes your ultimate, is an idol really, and it's actually dead. Think of all the stuff we're going to leave behind. Think of all the stuff Denny left behind this morning. None of it's going with him or with us. None of it is alive and living. Oh, they're good things, yes. A home, the bed you sleep in, the money in your retirement account. That's all good things. But Paul is saying none of it is alive and can save you and live in you and empower a people to live out what he's called them to do. But you are the temple of the living God. He dwells in you, which means you take him wherever you go. Think about that. When we scatter during the week, God is with us. That's why we still are the church even when we scatter. But now think about when we gather. Wow. All of us in one place together on a Sunday. Think about that for a moment. The power of God coming together as he dwells in those who've trusted him in the same room, all of us here. Now, singing alone at home in the shower is good, right? Well, maybe not your family, but to you it is. It's fun, right? You love to sing. Or or listening to a sermon alone online is good, but when we gather here together, it's better. It's better when we do it together. Martin Luther said something about that. He said, you know, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, ah, fire's kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. That's why we tell people that, you know, even if you don't feel it, well, the culture tells you it's only authentic if you feel it. But I would tell you, even on a Sunday morning, if you're not feeling it, come to church. Some of you came today not feeling it. And I think, I bet God has already broken through a little bit with you. Maybe not. Wait till the last song. It'll happen there. But all all that to say is that we gather. There's something that takes place when we gather that does not take place in the private of your home. It's all good there. We should study the word there too and listen to sermons. But something happens when we come together. We're the home of truth. And it's the next word Paul uses to describe the church. The home of truth. The pillar or buttress of the truth. It means that we are to meet together around the Word of God and sing it together and pray it together and preach it together so we spur one another on. You can do that. Nobody may ask you to come up and do this on a Sunday morning, although some of you will and have, but you can do that. You carry the same spirit, the same truth, the same God in your heart, and so to speak a word of encouragement, to speak a word of conviction sometimes, or even admonishment, or love and forgiveness, we can do that. You can do that. Where the foundation, Paul says, that protects and and holds the truth up on high, a pillar and buttress. That's That's why online church during the pandemic was at best a less than ideal compromise, wasn't it? (laughs) To get us through a tough season. 
That's what it was. We have to be together as the family with Jesus in our midst, all singing the same gospel tune. Or think of the family of an orchestra. Think of how an orchestra gets ready to start a performance. Well, better yet, listen to it. I think we've got it here. Got a little tap at the end there. I think they're getting ready to start. What were they doing in that moment? They were all tuning up together on an A string. So that when they play together, they're in harmony, right? They work together, the violin and the oboe and the cello, they all work together because they're all tuned to the same note. Well, what happens if they don't tune together? People get up and walk out of the performance, don't they? I was going to, I Googled actually our YouTube uh, out-of-tune orchestra. Don't do that this week. I'm just telling you, giving you a fair warning if you do. Some really painful, um, yeah, painful, painful things to listen to. Well, as the orchestra tunes to the key of A, you and I, we tune to the gospel. We tune our mission, our family to Jesus Christ, that key. And when we're in tune together, when we're in tune together, all with the same note, all with the same song, all with the same risen Lord, all with the same gospel, great stuff happens. Stuff like this happens. Did you see this a couple of years ago? Watch this. Crazy, huh? Hmm. So after church, we have a shed that needs to be moved right <laughs> behind the... No, I'm kidding. But do you see the connection? The work of many pulling in the same direction. 
with the same tune and the same power of the living God as family. This is mission. This is a picture right here of being on a mission together, following Jesus together. You can see why Paul gives us these intimate, warm terms. You can see why we're to be the hope of the world. We carry the key to to life, the gospel inside us, with the power of God inside us. That is why, Bethany Church, I believe our best days are still ahead of us. Our best days are still ahead of us because we are the home of the living God. So what is our song then? Paul moves to address it in the second point here. When he addresses our conduct, he believes also that we live conduct and our confession live under one roof. It's our second facet. The conduct and confession of the church go under one roof. Look at verse 16 with me after you fill that one in. Great indeed, he says, we confess is the mystery of godliness. There's conduct, godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. This is Jesus, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Whenever Paul talks of the mystery in his letters, He is speaking of the work of Christ, all-encompassing all of his work, which was hidden in the Old Testament like an acorn planted in the ground, but in the New Testament, a giant oak tree that had sprung up. What was once mysterious is now known. All the work of Christ he's speaking of. And he connects it in that verse so closely to our conduct, the mystery of godliness. This is is gospel-centered language here Paul is using. We're not saved to, we're not saved, excuse me, just saved by the gospel, but we're changed by the gospel. It's gospel-centered language he's using. We obey not to be accepted, but we are accepted, therefore we obey. The mystery of godliness, he wraps up our character and our conduct with our confession, our creed, what we believe. And he mixes them all together. He grounds it, the pillar and foundation. Did you see that there? It's actually an old creed there, or hymn. Paul didn't make up those words himself. He he, he is quoting something that was already there or had been already sung or a creed that had been said in the church. Isn't that fitting? The, The pillar and the foundation is something that Paul gets before he even wrote. It's why we say creeds here at church. On our communion Sunday, we say the Apostles' Creed together because we are holding up what others have held up before us. And it's a great reminder of that, isn't it? They were doing it in the early church in Ephesus here. We're holding up what others have held up before, and so Paul does that. He highlights here the supremacy of Christ, and he centers us on him. One commentator said this idea of godliness and creed or confession mixed together is to have a, a, a God consciousness, a mind that is focused on Christ or, or a Christ consciousness, being aware of who he is. Let's look at the creed for a minute. We're going to go through it quickly, but it is so important. I want us to look at it as having three couplets. There's six lines there, so broken up into two little couplets, two lines. And those lines are uh, antithesis. The first one is flesh and spirit. The second one is angels, spiritual beings, and, and the world. 
excuse me, nations is the word. And the third one is the world and glory. And he breaks it up, I think, Paul, in these two couplets, whoever, or whoever wrote this little hymn, to be kind of an antithesis. So let's look at him real quickly. Here's the first one, flesh and spirit, that Jesus is revealed in incarnation and resurrection. This we believe. The first two say, he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, which the Bible speaks of most clearly as resurrection. Here is human and divine. Here is God in flesh. Here is earthly ministry and divine victory. Just in those two little lines. Our second's this. Jesus is witnessed by angels and nations. So there's the antithesis, spiritual and people on earth nations. Here are the witnesses of Jesus, the author is saying. Both earthly nations, which means Gentile outside of Jews, so all the rest of the earth, and spiritual beings, the angels. Did you ever notice in the story of Jesus' life, the angels are always present at the most critical moments of his ministry. Part of that, I think, is just because they wanted to watch. <laughs> and they actually, Peter writes that they long to look into things that we know about by experience because he's redeemed us, not angels. They, they, they love to see his work. They witness to it. But now he's also witness to the nations, to the world, as his message has been shared. Here's the third. Jesus is received on earth and in heaven. Believed on in the world, the author writes, taken up in glory. What's he getting at there? He's talking about the reception that Jesus received during his ministry and after. The reception he received. He's being trusted on in the world, in our hearts, in our churches. He's been given recognition on earth. Think about all the nations. Think about all the kingdoms. Think about all the leaders who have come and gone. History's littered with a full dustbin of people and nations and leaders that have come and gone. And here still remains the church throughout all of it. We're still here. And the message is still alive. And it's still being believed upon on, in earth. And then the other antithesis, he ascended and was taken up in glory. He ascended from earth to heaven, where he was received as well, where now he lives and rules and reigns and sees over all, and one day is coming back to rule and receive us. Six lines to encapsulate the entire mystery of godliness. And this sacrificial, loving plan of redemption that whoever this author was who wrote this little hymn that Paul quotes and turns into Scripture is to be the, con the guiding creed of our conduct. That's why we are all about here helping people follow Jesus. As he loved, we live. As he sacrificed, so do we. As he's risen from the grave, so we too will have that eternal life. That's what drives us here. That's our foundation. That's the key to our identity and our mission. That's our tune, our song, right? That's what we all tune our bow or our, our violin to. You don't tune the bow. You actually turn, tune the instrument. <laughs> That's what drives our conduct to. 
as Paul says, the mystery of godliness. But Paul's realistic too. He's not head in the sky, just terribly naive optimist. That's not it. He's realistic too. He knows that the church is the most important thing going on on earth, and so our mission is of utmost importance. And so where would the enemy want to attack? The church. He knows that, but even inside the church, he knows there will be others who sing a different tune, a different song than the gospel key that can derail a local church. So he turns back to the topic of false teachers, and that's what we close with today. Our third facet, false teachers, what do they do? They add to the gospel, and by doing so, they turn it into no gospel. We'll unpack quickly verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. Something has happened in the church. Something has happened in the Ephesian church. Something disastrous has happened. Most likely even arising from the elders inside the church themselves. Hymenaeus, and I think is it Alexander in this book? That might be um, 2 Timothy, but Hymenaeus is in both. Something has happened in the church, probably arising from the elders. Some have departed from the faith, making a shipwreck of their faith. The faith that Paul has just explained, the mystery of Christ in verse 16. As Paul says, we shouldn't be surprised. He says, in latter times, in latter times, some will do this. Now, latter times in the Bible, when you hear that phrase... It's not an invitation to maybe speculate, like, is this the latter times? In the Bible, when it says latter times, that's anything from post-Jesus ascension to when he returns. So Paul and Timothy, from their eyes, they were in the latter times, as we are too, even though we're closer to the final day than them. We all have lived in these latter times. And this false teaching that he says you shouldn't be surprised about had two components. Here they are. One was it was the product of demons and the great deceiver, Satan, even. That's some strong, those are some strong words that Paul would say that in your midst, someone is singing a tune that's so out of tune, it's demonic even. Think about that for a minute, the reality of that, that behind every false teaching, and I would even say religion in the world, is something dark and spiritual at work. Dark spiritual real beings are at work. That was the first thing he said. And the second thing he said, these false teachers, they're, they're like doubly critiqued here. Insincere liars, basically, is what he says. It means, they're, it means they're, they're hypocritical liars. He says the false tune and teaching they're giving you, they don't even believe it themselves. They're using it for whatever reason, power, influence. They don't even believe the false tune. Their consciences, he says, they're like cauterized. Some of you have had a, a, a bleeding wound before that they just couldn't get to stop. What do they do? It's the most painful thing, isn't it? At least I've heard. Have it cauterized? Oh, it's like burned, seared so that it stops and maybe know, makes it almost scar up instantly. I don't know what it does, but it stops it from bleeding. Their consciences are cauterized, he says. They feel no remorse. So, what are the three ingredients that go then into every false teaching? Uh, John Stott described it so well. He says they have a spiritual cause, demonic. They have a human cause, insincere liars. 
and they have a moral cause. Those that promote them have had their consciences seared. That sounds pretty destructive, doesn't it? Sounds like a bad recipe, doesn't it? That is not a good recipe. Well, in their day, we don't know exactly what was being taught, but it was something to do with these false myths that uh, Paul mentions earlier in the letter, false myths and genealogies, but also a false asceticism here, denying yourself things. Look at verse 3 through 5 of chapter 4. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thankfulness or with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So they denied two things. And here's really how you can spot a false teacher. They denied two things. Um, two things that were great and good gifts from God. Certain, uh, certain foods and, and marriage. And what they ended up doing was creating a second tier of elite Christians who really got it. They're the ones who really understand. They add to the gospel. Jesus plus something else. Certain diets, abstaining from sex. Jesus plus something else. And to add Jesus, anything to Jesus, really equals nothing. It's another gospel. They added to it and therefore turned it into another gospel. These were two basic appetites that pretty much every human being on earth has. Food and sex. Godly good given desires that he gave to humans. The hunger of sexual hunger and the hunger of the stomach. Things that God gave to us that were good. They were basic needs. So they were possibly calling them to celibacy and vegetarianism. Anybody want to sign up? <laughs> All you Traeger owners are like, no, no. And here was the way to spot false teachers. Here was the two things. I already said that, but I didn't actually mention them. They denied the goodness of God and they distorted his word. That's how to spot a false teacher. Denying the goodness of God and distorting the things that are in his word. Guess who did those two things really early on in history? Satan in the garden. Denying God's goodness, he wants to keep this from you, and distorting his word. Did he really say? And it's been going on ever since. And Paul countered the false teachers by giving them this hope. The freedom of the gospel and the goodness of creation. The goodness of things that are made. Now this issue with sex is not new. And in fact, it went on much past this time in the early hundreds A.D., even into the early church, the church fathers had issues with sex and with the body. It was kind of thought of as dirty, and the physical world is dirty. I mean, even today, some of our purity culture stuff in the 90s and 2000s that focused so much on the act of sex rather than the heart of the matter and the relationship with Jesus gave sex this kind of dirty taboo. Lots of Christians, because of that, did not have a great first wedding night. Sexually. They had been trained and programmed that it was so taboo and dirty. Do you know who finally 
broke that and rescued us from that and returned us to a more biblical view of sex? Do you know who it was? You probably could never guess. The Puritans. (laughs) It's true. The Puritans. Their name has gotten such a uh, misnomer and so distorted Here's what Dr. Philip Ryken said about him. The Puritan doctrine of sex was a watershed on the cultural history of the West. That's, those are strong words. The Puritans devalued celibacy. They glorified companion marriage, affirmed married sex as both necessary and pure, and established the ideal of wedded romantic love, and they exalted the role of the wife. It is such a shame that the Puritans have become synonymous with grumpy asceticism and repression because that was not who they were. They were earthy. They were real. Think about it. Their families lived in one room. (laughs) I racked my brain this week as I was, um, and we're grateful for them for bringing us out of that, returning us to more biblical stance, as Paul's doing here. If God made it, it's good. And the false teachers were using it to um, control, to create a second tier I racked my brain this week trying to think about, understand, and assess where our temptations to false teaching are. It's just racking. I asked multiple people too, and, and surely one of them is this dualism that's plagued the church for centuries, that the spiritual is good and the physical world is somehow dirtier and bad. And we, we've been fighting that view at Bethany Church. Uh, you remember even our gospel series um, where we talked about our final destination is not an ethereal in disembodied world, it's a new heaven and earth, physical, with new bodies and new places to go and places to explore and jobs to be done. We've been fighting against that because I do think that is one of the ways. It's going to be a real physical place, a transformed earth. That's why God spoke that his creation was good, in fact, very good. And by the freedom of the gospel, we are to celebrate the goodness of creation by partaking of it, insects and food. So flowers, planets, rivers, waterfalls, sex, food, wine, mountains, oceans, faces, laughter, smells, some of them. Now, of course, in moderation, right, because any good thing can become a God thing, gluttony and drunkenness. And spiritual discipline for godliness is a good thing, but the answer isn't just to do away with the thing. We're done with sex. We're done with these foods. We're just done with it. No. The answer is in verse 5. Look at it. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. The answer is receiving everything you have in your life with a thankful heart with thankfulness, with thanksgiving. When we give thanks, why? When we give thanks for good things, what do you do? You recalibrate, you reorient your heart to the giver of all good things. And you begin to have a godly perspective on the physical world and creation and that it will be redeemed. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching and painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace, grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Okay, well, his interests might be different than ours. I've only been to one opera in my life, so they might be different, but you get the point. 
Grace before bike riding, grace before hunting, grace before hiking, grace before eating, grace before coffee, grace before fishing, grace before planting flowers, grace before lovemaking? Maybe. Surely that's one of our temptations, the false teaching, thinking the spiritual world is somehow better than the physical. But there's others. There are others. And I said, I racked my brain this week. And rather than hit on other false teaching, I thought I would just give us a warning. As Paul is giving Timothy a warning to be watchful. So as your pastor, I want to do that today as we close. I want to put a challenge and a warning for you to be watchful in your life. I think today the greatest threat to the church in false teaching, the greatest threat to the local church, actually maybe it doesn't even come from inside the local church. You know where it comes from? Online. It's online. The internet has way more influence over all of us really than maybe our local pastors. Discipleship must include the place where we consume most of our information. It has to, doesn't it? It's got to go into that realm too. And for all of us, probably all of us in this room, maybe not everybody, for most of us, that's the internet. How do I know? Because I too grab my phone in the morning before my Bible. (laughs) So we have to be thoughtful consumers of everything online everything we get because we're being shaped and molded by that whether we know it or not, whether it's an online article, an online news piece, Facebook information, online sermons. We have to be vigilant. You know why? Because drifting from the truth, it's never like one giant step. It's like one commentator described this week. It's like starting in a room that's green and walking down a succession of, oh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 rooms, and each one is just a shade different. And then you get to that final room, and somebody hands you a paint swatch of a, what was in the first room, and you realize, oh, I'm in a blue room now, and that was green. <laughs> it changed so small along the way that you didn't realize what had changed. Some have had beliefs changed so subtly they've left the church And their departure from the truth was so subtle over time, they didn't even realize their views had changed. That's why we have to be vigilant. That's why our message is so important today. Our identity, our mission, our conduct, our our confession. But just as important, if we are God's family, how does he view us? That's what I want to leave you with today. If we're his family, how does he view us? I love this church. I care for this church as its shepherd. But how much more does Jesus as our groom love his bride than any one of us love this church? Think about that. He is in the room right now. He's living. He's raised from the dead. And the real flesh and blood bodily Jesus is coming back someday. And as his family, how will we take care of his house till he returns? Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be your kingdom citizens that live under your rule and reign in the way you want us to. So let us be that family. Let us hold conduct and confession together and always look to highlight the truth and point out error when we see it. In Christ's name, amen.